0: Hey, what's up? Hello, everybody. Alex Kapitko here, and it's the Center for Reality Podcast. And uh, you're going to be surprised to hear this, but for the, like, nth day in a row, it's snowing. Big surprise, I know. I am back on the treadmill, and I uh, actually wore sunglasses while I was running on the treadmill to kind of convince myself I'm not out there. And, yeah, I, I'm just getting used to the cold dreariness now. So, I guess we need the water. I hear some people say, oh, look, the drought's going to be over now. And I always just say... One year of extreme flooding and too much water is not going to make up for a couple decades of a lack of water. It's just not how it works. And it actually backs up the struggling climate issues we're seeing when you think about all these shifts, feast or famine type of situations, right? And yeah, it's always interesting being in the West. So anyways, today I want to talk about Putin's basically existential war, new comments he's made about NATO. I also want to talk about Russian plans, or at least a document we've found, about plans to absorb Belarus by 2030, China's appeasement plan, which they call a peace plan, and kind of diplomatic dissent in South Africa, and basically just kind of a troubling trend where South Africa seems to be giving up on human rights for economic growth and eastern alliances. But first... Our buddy Ron DeSantis, or as Trump calls him, DeSanctus, or De Sanctimonious, or Meatball Ron, which I all think, I think Trump's kind of on it with these names. I I, I, I really like these names, the way, the ones he's coming out, but Ron DeSanctus is probably my favorite. And if you do watch that God video that uh, Ron DeSantis puts out, where it's like God turns to Ron DeSantis, you understand why Trump called him Ron DeSanctimonious. But anyways, Ron DeSantis, who is, you know, Mr. Small Government, conservative, keep government out. He has finally punished Disney for going against his political agenda. And he's being a true conservative here, keeping government out of private organizations. Of course, I'm kidding. He's, he's being a complete hypocrite here. But CNN writes, appearing at the doorstep of Walt Disney World... Florida Governor Ron DeSantis signed a bill Monday that gives him new power over Disney, effectively punishing the entertainment giant for speaking out against the Republicans' political agenda. And let's remember what Disney's being punished for. And I'm kind of spitballing here because I haven't watched a lot of Disney movies, but some examples I can think of are there was a gay or maybe a gay character in the new Buzz Lightyear movie. Ariel, the Little Mermaid, might be black now. And, you know, we don't want to offend anybody with making one of the characters look like America. But anyways... Those are some of the many things that kind of started this you know, anti-gay, groomer, anti-woke Florida stuff, which I'm anti-woke as well, but if Disney wants to have a gay character or make Ariel black, there are bigger issues in this world, and it's just always fascinating that Ron DeSanctis uh, goes for this. But anyways, yes, he has kept to his promise, and he's punished Disney. Now, I do want to just say that I do think that the Reedy Creek Improvement District, which is where the Disney apparatus is, has too much power. They don't pay state taxes. They horribly pay their employees. It's corrupt. They pretty much control Central Florida. Like, if it it was for a different reason, I would actually agree with Ron DeSanctis here. I would be totally fine with him kind of making Disney pay its fair share because all you have to do is watch, like, the Florida Project or any documentaries out of Orange County on how poorly the the Disney company treats employees as the prices keep going up. Record profits, low pay is kind of their thing. So I'd, I'd be okay, actually, if DeSantis punished Disney for other reasons because I've never been one who says we should keep government out of some of these things. But anyways, so this Reedy Creek Improvement Project... Ron DeSantis has punished them, and what he's basically done is he's announced new appointments to this reconstructed Disney board. And of course, it's not unbiased, it's not going to reform anything, and actually it might make Disney even more biased in the other direction. Ron DeSantis, to me, always is the guy who shows how the cure can be worse than the disease. Like, I don't like all this identity politics, far-left progressivism, all that bullshit. But at the same time, he's overreacting and almost trying to be an authoritarian here, and these are the people that he's put on the board. Just a few examples. It includes Martin Garcia, who's a lawyer from Tampa, and a prolific Republican donor whose private firm contributed like 50 grand to DeSantis's reelection. So he's a real uh, uh, bipartisan dude. <laughs> also, you have uh, Bridget Ziegler, who's a Sarasota County School Board member, who is also a co-founder of the organization, uh, it's a conservative organization, Moms for Liberty, and it's the wife of Christian Ziegler, who's actually the new chairman of the Republican Party of Florida. So instead of having people that know about Disney or maybe less partisan people, DeSantis is putting in allies. I would not be surprised if surprised if uh, Chris Rufo, who's a nutbag from the Manhattan Institute, uh, slowly becomes part of this as well. But the thing here is that they're not actually doing something good to reform Disney. It's just a statement after Disney had members of the LGBTQ plus community in movies, and it's just kind of all insane. Again, another reason why I don't know if I would like DeSantis as president, just because he seems like such a kind of want to be authoritarian, like. I don't even see Trump doing this with Disney. So, again, I think DeSantis, DeSanctimonious, whatever you want to call him, is dangerous. We'll have to see this. But Woke definitely does go to die in Florida, as he's said many times. But the problem is also, like, extreme right-wing views and government control also might come to thrive in Florida. So, fun times. And, you know, as extremism and authoritarianism seem to be thriving in Florida in terms of DeSantis' views on education and Disney, I also like how he's done this little tour He's been to New York and Chicago recently, criticizing the high crime, the woke police departments, condemning the mayors. It's an interesting one because I've seen a lot of numbers that put places like New York City and Illinois, for example, and Florida, all kind of in the similar to same range, kind of middle of the United States in terms of gun violence, especially outside of downtown Chicago. And also, I mean, all you have to do is look on the news. And Florida's had a decent amount of crime and shootings recently. There's been a numerous amount of shootings. Like, I just don't understand why DeSantis is going around the country being all holy and lecturing other mayors and other governors when his state's kind of middle of the road. Like, if you, at, if you look at some of the crime polling and just well-being socioeconomic polls, Florida's only like two or three spots above Illinois, so it's just kind of ironic that he's going on this tour lecturing people while his own state has a lot of violent crime. And again, this is another reason why it seems like Trump is getting his mojo back. And I hate saying that, but, you know, he went to East Palestine. He's doing more rallies. He's making up these funny nicknames. And he's not really attacking Nikki Haley too much. I I do think the Sanctus is going to have a tough time with Trump, even though people think he's the shiny shiny golden, whatever you want to call it. I, I think Trump still still might beat him in the end. But we'll move on to the foreign policy stuff now. And enough about uh, Ron DeSantis today. So first off, I want to talk about Putin's existential war. So a little update on the chaos, destruction, tragedy in Ukraine. There was an interview released on Sunday, but I think it actually happened a little bit earlier last week, like Wednesday or Thursday. And it was with Vladimir Putin. And he basically describes the war in Ukraine in existential terms. Now, this actually echoes what Dmitry Medvedev, uh, the former president of Russia, said last week, you know, where he was talking about he sees this as an existential problem for Russia, the Russian people won't survive if Ukraine wins, blah, blah, blah. And it's not really surprising, I guess, but some experts I know from foreign policy think tanks do argue and write a lot about how this is kind of bracing Russia for the fighting to come. The Economist also notes here in quotes, Putin alleged that America and the West were intent on breaking up Russia, threatening the very survival of the Russian ethnic group. Again, this is that talk of the Russian ethnic group. And one thing I've noticed is that the rhetoric itself has not really changed since a year ago when all of this started, but the urgency of it is, the drastic, dangerous measures of it have. And I've also noticed that he's been talking about NATO much more than just Ukraine lately. He's also been focusing on NATO in terms of its nuclear potential or the nuclear threat it poses to Russia. And what this tells me, along with the revelations I talked about last week about how something is happening in Moldova, that this is not about Ukraine. It never was. It's about kind of this Russian ethno state or this Russian supremacy. It's kind of it's kind of about going back to the Cold War era and punishing the West for kind of winning, I guess, the Cold War in an extent. And it wasn't like a war where the Russia actually or the, the West actually had a victory. It's just the West, you know, Could kind of keep the lights on and if you wanted to buy something you could go to the store and get it and you could be religious or not you could watch tv and not be controlled it's like Russia and the Soviet Union just lost because no one wanted to live in a autocratic nightmare dystopia but anyways I have been sympathetic to the people that have argued that after the cold war we could have been more cooperative and welcoming to Russia I do understand that perspective I definitely do and there are probably things we could have done differently but I think by this point, it's clear that Russia is not just the side that did worse after a bad marriage or feels slighted by someone. It, it, it wants revenge and wants to be seen as a power again. And if it's not becoming a fascist regime, I don't know what any of those words mean. Because what I'm sure of is that this war is not existential to the Russian people, like Putin says, but it sure as hell is existential to Putin himself and his regime and we're already seeing cracks in that and as i've said numerous times if putin were to fall whoever comes next would be much worse so yes it i do see see this as an existential threat to putin but not to russia itself anyways from yesterday though reuters has a pretty troubling article that goes deeper into putin's interview The article writes in quotes, Putin said the West wanted to divide up Russia and then control the world's biggest producer of raw materials, a step he said would well lead to the destruction of many of the peoples of Russia, including the ethnic Russian majority. The article later notes that in quotes here, uh, Putin said the tens of billions of dollars worth of U.S. and European military assistance to Ukraine showed that Russia was now facing off NATO itself, which is the Cold War nightmare, by the way, of both Soviet and Western leaders. Later on, he also expresses how he had been forced to take into account NATO's nuclear capabilities. I don't know exactly what that means, but we know that Putin is now looking at this conflict as one of NATO, and not just taking back Russian territories in Ukraine. And that really does trouble me, because I see us on a collision course to some sort of bigger conflict. I hope I'm wrong. I could be wrong, but right now it just seems like we're going in the direction, and momentum is quickly picking up. And the thing is, is like, once these conflicts kind of get going... You don't notice it at the time, but it's kind of like the train that the brakes stop, or it's like going down a hill without brakes. Like, the quicker, the more momentum you pick up, the harder it is to stop. And we also have to remember that as supplies get depleted, as things get worse, a lot of these conflicts really look like trench warfare again. And so, not not great by any means. And as rhetoric is brewing in Russia, there's also not a lot of good news out of Moldova, as I talked about last week. Belarus, or China, right? Moldova, just today I was reading more concerns about what is happening in Moldova. The Russians have said that they are, well, the Kremlin has put out a statement saying something to the effect of they're worried about what's happening in Moldova. Again, I think Putin is trying to justify some sort of special operation in Moldova. Again, information is rocky out of there. I mean, Biden was meeting with Moldova's leader last week, and the Moldovan government is on high alert. But again, we have those breakaway regions in Moldova, like Transnistria, and we'll have to keep an eye on it. But then also, Belarus is still in the picture, and not in a good way either. And the AP wrote yesterday in an article in quotes, Alexander Lukashenko, the president, by the way, of Belarus and a close ally of uh, Putin, will visit uh, Beijing this week. And uh, China's foreign ministry said, as U.S. concerns grow, that China is considering providing military aid to Russia. So now, as we know, Belarus has been a crucial state in helping Putin conduct the war. In Ukraine, right, he's kind of, I mean, he's kind of Putin's lapdog, let's be honest. The guy, the guy has no sense of strength or pride in the country anymore. And Lukashenko, by the way, has also been Belarus's only president. He's like the last dictator in Europe and... Belarus has allowed its territories near Ukraine to be used as staging grounds for the initial invasion a year ago, so they're complicit in all this as well. And there's also been reports for a long time, even since the 90s, that Russia has always had interest in turning Russian, or sorry, Russia and Belarus into some giant Russian ethnostate. They do share a lot of culture, or at least political ideologies. I'm not a Belarusian expert, but there's there's been packs to make them kind of some giant state since the 90s. And... While, like, going off of that for a second, while this is just a plan, maybe even a fever dream, (laughs) there are reports of Russia planning to absorb Belarus by 2030. Now, before I get into the details, I think absorb is a pretty fascinating term, and definitely not what Russia wants to actually do. Previously on the podcast, uh, and even on the last podcast, I have mentioned that while Lukashenko is close with Putin— The population doesn't really love him. He's been using the police state to basically suppress opposition, suppress elections. We heard about that that Ryanair jet, what, a couple of years ago, where they took off one of the dissidents and brought him back to imprison him. Lukashenko lost an election, and the lady whose name's escaping me that actually won had to go into exile to avoid assassination. Like, Lukashenko's not very popular, and people want him out. So I don't think he actually wants to go to war with Putin, because he's afraid that escalation could kind of be the catalyst that maybe causes some sort of revolution there. Again, he has set up up quite a police state, so I don't know if that's particularly possible. But there is a strong democratic opposition to him, even if it's suppressed or exiled, I guess. And I also don't think Putin, because of this, could just absorb Belarus. We saw him try to absorb parts of Ukraine, and that didn't work. He would also need to use force, and I think Lukashenko would help him, and there are a lot of Russian allies and loyalists in in Belarus, but I don't think Absorb would happen. I don't think it would just be some peaceful unification of Russia and Belarus. I don't think the Belarusians would welcome Russia with open arms. And anyways, DW has an interesting article from a few days ago, and it writes here in quotes, going back to this document, by the way, it writes here in quotes, a Russian presidential document was obtained by a group of international journalists who believe it to be authentic. It re It reportedly dates back to the summer of 2021. The article continues uh, in quotes here, Russia is planning to absorb neighboring Belarus by 2030. The document called strategic goals of the Russian Federation in Belarus is a 17 page document that reportedly dates back to the summer of 2021 and sets out a plan to, to infiltrate Belarus politically, economically and military. Plans are set out on different stages, short term or until 2022 medium term, or until 2025, and long term, meaning 2030. The long term plan translates into the formation of a common union state under, of course, by the way, Russian leadership. Anyways, like, this is, I actually learned too, which I wasn't super aware of, that this is actually not something completely new, because apparently in 1999, Russia and Belarus did formally agree to be part of a union state. And So they've always been in some sort of like economic and political cooperation. Now I should note, and I think this is definitely worth talking about. This to me is different. Like some sort of union in the 90s is different than absorption. And when Putin talks about absorption, when the Kremlin talks about absorption, this sounds more like annexation to me. And I just say that because according to legal documents, the two are already in a union So absorption, you may ask, what's the difference? Putin wants some sort of bulwark set up in, in, basically set up in Belarus between Russia and countries like Lithuania. Annexation, as we've learned in the past, usually is not peaceful. So that is somewhat troubling if you're talking about maybe peace by any means. Now, getting back to where I started this segment on Belarus, Lukashenko is meeting with Chinese officials. Now, last week we had Chinese officials meeting with the Kremlin, We have Antony Blinken, the U.S. Secretary of State, warning that China might start giving uh, Russia weapons, lethal aid, I guess would be the term. And then you have China calling us the instigators of this war, and then also wanting a peace plan. Like, it's kind of a shit show. Let's be completely honest. Like, it's not looking great. And zooming out again, as Lukashenko is meeting with Chinese officials, the Economist also notes that on Saturday, in quotes, Chinese officials refused to endorse a statement condemning Russia's invasion of Ukraine at a meeting of G20 finance ministers. This also comes as, C- as the CIA's director, William Burns, has said in an interview, in quotes, we're confident that the Chinese leadership is considering the provision of lethal equipment. And kind of getting into the Chinese side of this, because like I said, we're kind of doing a multi- multilateral deep dive into what's happening here. I talked about this last week. And was definitely hoping that, was, that it was just speculation. But it does seem that concerns that China might get involved are growing. Which I think would be stupid, by the way. I, I've said time and time again on the record that I think China's smarter than this. But maybe they're not. But anyways, China has, you know, warned the U.S. not to send more troops. And it's clearly on the pro-Russia rhetoric game, even though it wants peace. Going further, China has actually finally released this much anticipated peace plan. And let me just let me just spoil it for you. It's not much of a peace plan and it's kind of paradoxical and ironic and stupid. And I would call it more of an appeasement plan because it's very thin in the details and definitely doesn't acknowledge that Putin started this. The AP notes in quotes, the plan released by Chinese uh, sorry, China's foreign minister mainly reiterated long-held positions. And analysts said Beijing would be an unlikely broker given its close ties to Russia and unwavering stance over the conflict. And I think unlikely broker is a good way to describe China. There's no good faith acting in this case. It's biased and it's kind of, I guess, omitting some of the reasons why this is going on. And and it's true is that China, we know, has been helping Russia kind of avoid some of the worst sanctions. We know China's been quiet on the atrocities being committed. <coughs> Excuse me, and we know that China also is kind of pissed because one day I think the country does want to invade Taiwan and this might be kind of shining a light on why they shouldn't do that. So moving on though, I think Al Jazeera has a pretty good article on the plan proposed by China, and we'll get into some of the details, but the but the article reads here in quotes Conflict and war benefit no one, China said on Friday. The article talks about, in quotes, the 12-point paper, time to coincide with the first anniversary of Russia's invasion of neighboring Ukraine, has finally been released. And from my understanding, the plan urges an end to Western sanctions. That's kind of the big section of it. It also calls for the establishment of a humanitarian corridor to evacuate citizens. And it also wants this corridor to be able to ensure the exportation of grain, because as I've talked about before, there's been major disruptions that have caused food prices to spike, especially in the global south. Um, China's also said nuclear power plants must be kept safe, which the Russians have been bombing the shit out of, by the way. So Russia's already reneging on that. And China also said that the threat and use of nuclear weapons should be opposed. Now, Al Jazeera also notes here, in quotes, that these proposals, in quotes, mainly elaborate on long-held Chinese positions, including that all countries' sovereignty, independence, and territorial integrity be effectively guaranteed. And, you know, going into some of the details of this, I'm okay with what they want with humanitarian corridors, keeping nuclear power plants safe, And steps to ensure the exportation of grain, because I'm sure everyone knows, uh, I mean, it's, it's even worse in Europe and Africa, but food prices are not great. And I think some of these steps are things that we can all agree on, but I don't like the idea of lifting sanctions or the ceasefire that China also wants, because first, Russia has been able to evade most of the sanctions, so maybe they're not working great, but China's been a main help in this. China's aiding Russia find more clandestine ways to either evade sanctions or they've been giving them aid. I read in a report that in 2022, Chinese exports to Russia increased by 12.8%, while imports, including natural resources, grew 43.4%. So yeah, China's helping out a lot. And so maybe China doesn't want to as much. Maybe that's why they want to lift the sanctions. But to me, it just seems kind of stupid. And second, as I said last week, a ceasefire would just be likely to give Putin more time to resupply, reconfigure what's happening, arm up, and maybe get a new plan. So a ceasefire would not help Ukraine. It would just buy more time for Russia. And that is not, not a good thing. I think another interesting part in this peace plan is when China basically notes that there needs to be an end to the, in quotes, Cold War mentality. And apparently this is pretty common for China when it... criticizes the West. And apparently it's a very indirect way of criticizing what Beijing regards as global dominance by the United States and its interference in other countries. Now, we can have that debate at some point about the US interfering in other countries, because we definitely have, even as recently as Afghanistan, Iraq. But watching what Russia is doing in Ukraine, is definitely interfering in another country's affairs. So IDK, I don't don't know at this point. And ultimately, and I think this is another big one to mention, is that I think this peace plan is definitely thin on solutions, but thick on rhetoric and shows that China kind of wants everything. It wants the cake and it wants to eat it too, which is kind of difficult in a conflict or a war, whatever you want to call it. And since the invasion... China has gained strong leverage over Russian energy supplies and their prices. Like I mentioned the growth over the last year in supplies to Russia. But then at the same time, I do think that China sees this invasion as somewhat of a mess and the sunken uh, sunken costs are growing. But to me, it also seems like the reasons are more selfish on why China wants this conflict to end. I think that This gentleman named Blake Herzinger, who's a non-resident fellow at the AEI, the American Enterprise Institute, has a great point on why China may want this conflict to come to an end. He writes here, Russia has done Beijing very few favors by waking the world up to this threat before Beijing was ever ready to undertake an invasion of Taiwan. And I think that is a very good point is that now everyone's focusing on, oh my God, what could China do? oh my god, is, is, is Ukraine expanding? Is Russia expanding? I mean, and I think China's kind of pissed off here, because for a while, they've been kind of quietly planning all of this. And now it's all right in the spotlight. And also, the peace plan is pretty troubling to me, and it does seem more like appeasement, because China talks about territorial integrity and ending the conflict. But it is silent on Putin's illegal war of conflict, annihilation, aggression, I also think it's hard to really at the end of the day think that Russia and Ukraine's positions could actually be mediated. And China's focused on dialogue, on talking, but China, I mean sorry, Russia and Ukraine have only pretty much had indirect conversations lately. So to me it's a big reach. Especially when the Russians are, you know, taking children to camps in Russia and indoctrinating them and they're, you know, doing stuff like we saw in Bucha, you know, mass atrocities war crimes it's kind of hard now to just bring them to the table and talk ultimately i also question china's motives here because the country is considered and we've seen reports on this it's considering supplying lethal weapons to russia but then it wants peace like how do you square those two things here because if you want peace then why are you thinking about helping the aggressor and moving on i should also mention that some observers have warned that and I think this is a key point here is that Ukraine and its allies do need to tread carefully here. What I mean is that we don't want to completely isolate China either. We don't want to push it so far away and, you know, use extreme criticism because that could move Beijing even closer to Russia and closer to providing aid in terms of, you know, lethal weapons. So, it's a really really tough one in a lot of ways. And DW Another article from DW also kind of has a great point on this issue. It's an article from two days ago, and it notes here in quotes, Zelensky has repeatedly sought to make contact with Chinese President Xi since Russia invaded Ukraine last year. Repeatedly. At the same time, Xi has not met or called the Ukrainian president even once, despite regular contact with Putin. That's nice, isn't it? Brenner from the Global Public Policy Institute explains and quotes: "It is foolish to believe that a party that is on the side of one player, namely China, on the Russian side, could play the role of the mediator. The same way Europe couldn't be a mediator because it is firmly on the side of Kiev." And I I think that is a I think that's a very good point, right? I mean, even the United States, like, how are we supposed to mediate it when we see Russia as a completely atrocious actor? And how would you have China, which is giving aid to Russia, all of a sudden broker the peace? To me, this just seems like some sort of PR campaign by the Chinese to try and look peaceful when they've kind of had a bad year of PR. That's what I see this as more than anything. And I should note that I think the negotiations, if they happen, which I do hope they do eventually, I think they'll be held in some place like Turkey because Turkey is a NATO member but then it's also sympathetic towards Russia and kind of a bomb thrower in NATO. Wouldn't be perfect, but all the talks we have seen so far have happened there, and that would make more sense to me. And wrapping up this segment, though, the BBC has reported that Zelensky has said he plans to meet Xi Jinping to discuss these proposals on ending the war. So, I mean, even if it goes nowhere, that is a step. But I just... I'll see it when I believe it. I'll believe it when I see it, sorry, um, that I just don't think China's a good actor here and they've just given me no evidence that they are whatsoever. Moving on, but still sticking on this conflict, I want to go south now to Africa for a moment and just talk about the Russian alliance there, or at least sympathizing, that is kind of worrying me as well. And I mentioned this oh god, back in January, I think, that it looks like Russia and South Africa are getting closer yet again. In an article called Irrational Interest, South Africa's Diplomatic Dissent, The Economist has a really good piece on this. So I'll get into that in a moment. But we, but before we get into that, I did want to start with an interesting situation of rhetoric versus action in South Africa. So basically, South Africa has been silent about the war in Ukraine and has even welcomed Russian aid, has kind of been toast in condemning what's happening. And they've actually, well, actually this week, they're going to be doing naval tests with the Russians and the Chinese. And... This is kind of a bummer, and it's kind of fairly ironic and even paradoxical, because in history over the last couple decades, South Africa's kind of been a symbol of fighting against oppression, apartheid rule, and under Mandela especially, it became a symbol of fighting for human rights. And so it's kind of a bummer that it's all of a sudden become silent on Putin's war of aggression. But I guess to go back, this shift seemed to at least come to fruition last august when naledi pandor who is the foreign minister of south africa gave a speech that was pretty controversial and it attacked a lot of the country's main allies which is fascinating to me kind of like digging your own grave but she called out let's see she called out america for bullying african countries the eu for being disingenuous in its trade relations and the west in general for being hypocritical of course i'm paraphrasing here that wasn't the the specific words she said but Then she also basically championed national interest as the only important feature of South Africa's foreign policy, which was a huge shift. The Economist notes here, this overtly overturned its former principle that human rights should guide international relations. And that was, in a sense, kind of what had been going on in South Africa for at least the last couple decades. And I think the key to her speech, or my problem with her speech, is that it marked the country's move or transition, from the West towards the East, mainly China and Russia. And like I said, this week, the country has hosted naval drills with Russia and China, and also over the previous few months, it's welcomed Sergei Lavrov from Russia, who is a real POS. And The Economist also discusses, in quotes, how this shift will weaken universal rights, undermine Africa's effort to become more democratic, and most importantly for South Africa, harm its economy and diminish its diplomatic heft. And like I said, I think this is a problem because over the last few decades, South Africa has not been perfect, but it's done a good job enough of balancing human rights with national interests. But those days definitely seem to be over because I think we have to remember that under Mandela and then Mbeki, South Africa was able to keep this balance that allowed the country to emerge from isolationism and then also become a player on the world stage, right? It even after it kind of kept this balance of diplomacy, which was national interests and human rights, it even helped intervene in regional conflict, conflict, sorry, to broker peace, such as in the Congo, I think also in Burundi. And I think maybe the issue is, I don't know for sure, but at least this is an argument. And I've heard this argument that when South Africa became a world player, it also got involved in trade and investment and was in higher demand and more involved in the world. And this was kind of a double-edged sword because it changed the country's role in the world. And this may help explain why it feels content on focusing on national issues instead of foreign ones. Like if trade and investment are up and blah, 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 then they're probably good. Now, of course, inflation and economic woes have really hit South Africa recently. So maybe that's also why they're having this change because, let's be honest, its internal dynamics are not going well either right now. And so while that kind of makes sense, I don't think that it totally explains the situation, because if we're talking about pure just economics, pure trade and investment, it would actually benefit the country to stick with the West over Russia and China. What I mean here is that according to economic numbers, Russia accounts for, and this is crazy, less than 0.5% of international trade in goods, while the EU accounts for 22% and America 7.5%. Now, of course, oil has changed since the war. Uh, South Africa does get more oil from Russia than before. I would worry, though, that just because of these numbers, that this could backfire on South Africa, put it, A, into more of a Chinese-influenced debt trap, here to an extent, but it could also cause the country to radicalize as maybe economic issues become worse. And I think because of the aforementioned numbers, the African National Congress, which governs South Africa, likes Russia for other reasons, not just trade and investment. Same with China. And I think the main key is that Russia has highly invested in the country over the last few decades, so there is maybe some bias there. Also, as I've talked about before, Russia does supply a lot of arms to the African continent in general. But I think, but I think second here is that the Soviet Union was highly influential in South Africa and also helped the liberation movements when the West turned a blind eye to the apartheid regimes. to to put it lightly, and Al Jazeera had a good piece from a few years ago that discusses in quotes how the Soviet Union backed the liberation movement with arms and money. This was in stark contrast to the West, where the United States labeled the ANC a terrorist organization. Washington, D.C. even considered hero Nelson Mandela a terrorist until 2008. Later, the article also writes, many of the ANC leaders were educated or received military training in the USSR, Some, like the late Eric Stalin-Mitsali, have Russian nicknames thanks to their connections to Moscow. So I think there's just kind of old historic ties here as well, which are kind of important in understanding maybe why this is occurring. Not fully the case, but I think part of it could be understand. And I guess while this is understandable, it's disappointing to see, but it shows that while a lot of the Western world is focusing on protecting Ukraine, I think a lot of the rest of the world is moving on or doesn't see it as this existential struggle as we do and this is understandable to me in a sense because I think democracy and capitalism just haven't worked out as well in the global south and I think a lot of the Russian and Chinese messages can ring true to those that listen or are willing to listen or are questioning the west and the hesitancy or the western skepticism in South Africa that we've seen growing I think allows them to be open ears for others other investment and I do think it'll backfire because Russia and China are not good actors. I have a published paper on the Belt and Road Initiative, which I think is a Chinese debt trap that is going to bankrupt a lot of countries. We've already seen this occurring in some of Southeast Asia. And I don't think these are good actors. It's, it's worrying to me, but not surprising. But I will just end with a quote from The Economist because I think it provides us with some good closing insight. The article ends with, in quotes, <clears throat> by refusing to condemn Russia's invasion of Ukraine, Under the guise of neutrality, South Africa is emboldening warmongers everywhere. By snubbing its liberal friends for autocrats, South Africa is wrong in principle. It's also acting against its own interests. And I think that's a key here. Now, before we're out of here going completely full circle, just, you know, zooming out into this whole conflict because there's so many moving pieces and they're not the moving pieces I like to see, but I've also seen some not super reliable polls out of Russia but for conversation's sake, the polls show how the massive losses of Russian troops have actually made the public more supportive of the conflict. So that's not good for long-term goals or hoping for change internally. But also in the United States, the AP reports in quotes here, 48% say they favor the U.S. providing weapons to Ukraine, with 29% opposed and 22 saying they're neither in favor nor opposed. The article continues, though, in May 2022, Less than three months into the war, 60% of U.S. adults said they were in favor of sending aid to Ukraine. And this isn't good because we are seeing the public, now less than 50% of the public supports aiding Ukraine. And I would not be surprised if we saw those numbers keep dipping. I think a lot of it is propaganda and a lot of lies, misunderstanding of the situation. Like I talked about last week, a lot of the far right actually doesn't want to help Ukraine. I think because they see Putin and Viktor Orban as kind of illiberal heroes for a lot of their election denialism and far-right views. And I I think what we need to do less is talk about this in the terms of democracy. I think we need to focus less on this being an issue of democracy versus Putin's Russia. Because I think for some of us, like for me, that's a standing thing is that we need to keep democracy safe. But I think to really appeal to the American people, unfortunately, we need to tell the public what Russia is actually doing to the Ukrainians. I mean, it's not covered enough and i'm disappointed that it isn't but you hear reports of the russian troops just like pretty much kidnapping kids from these villages that they take over taking them to russia and pretty much indoctrinating them or de-ukrainianization i don't know if that's a word but they're trying to eradicate the ukraine people and you start with the kids right you start with the younger generations and i mean Anne applebaum talks about how in parts of russia and and eastern ukraine i mean you practically do have concentration camps and so I hate to say it, but I think if you want to appeal to this being more than just democracy or more than Ukraine, I think you have to show what Putin is doing. I mean, if you look at Buka and these other liberated cities, I mean, the mass graves are insane. And so I think we need to say less this is about giving arms to stop the aggressor and bolster democracy. I think we need to say, no, this is like a aggressive genocidal regime that is trying to uh, kind of eradicate a people. And uh, maybe that won't work for everyone, but maybe it would at least bring some humanity or the faces to it, I guess. So anyways, good episode. I hope your day is going well. It is still snowing. You're going to be surprised to hear that, I know. But anyways, uh, lots of light topics here, so I apologize. But have a great rest of your day. You can find me on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Podbean. You know the rest. Take care. Adios.